What's good, football fans? Back at you once again with another podcast. And I wanted to come on today and talk a little bit about a few topics that have been going on. You know, nothing extreme has really happened this week, but there has been some movement and a little bit of stir of news surrounding opening contract talks with Terry McLaurin and Deron Payne at the Combine. Now, as most of you know, the Combine will start Tuesday and it'll run all the way until the, the next Monday. But this marks... A moment that really honestly should have already began when it when when you're talking about Terry McLaurin I believe you know with what he's brought to the team an extension should have already been in you know the works over the last six months to eight months maybe even a year but I also realized that his agent is probably telling him you know we need to, to wait until this time and get it done so they could get more out of it and of course, you know, the last couple seasons he's had where he's proven he's our number one uh, weapon. And, you know, the, the, the talks that, that, um, that Coach Rivera has, has constantly had saying how much he means to the team. You know, we all knew that this moment was coming where we'd have to pay this guy. And now, you know, here, here we are ready to, you know, have to pay the piper. And I'm thinking he's probably going to get somewhere near $20 million a year. And if anybody on our roster is worth that kind of money, it's Terry. So it doesn't really bother me to pay this kid what he's worth and go on and move on now before his contract becomes something even bigger. You know, like we wait another year and he, maybe he tests free agent market and sees what another team will offer him. And then we're having to pay him more money to keep him. So it's just smart to go on and make the move now. While we have, I want to say, a tiny bit of leverage left and a good amount of cap room, which before we make any moves right now, I think it's sitting at somewhere between like 30 and $32 million is what they really have in cap space to be able to make some moves. And, of course, the other little piece of information there was is that they wanted to open up contract talks with Deron Payne, which, as most people already have in their brain, that they think that Payne's going to be some sort of trade piece, which... I say that I don't think that this completely kills that idea because, you know, when you start talking about trading a player, you lose all the leverage. So if they go into an idea of trying to sign him and then they make a move, you know, in a couple weeks, two or three weeks to be able to trade him, you know, maybe it shows that they still want to keep him and it keeps his trade value high. Who knows? Maybe they want to keep that front, you know, four together and see, you know, where it goes. I'm not sure that that's really something that could happen, though, when you consider the fact that both edge rushers, Chase Young and Montez Sweat, are going to have to be re-upped eventually. Sweat before Chase, and I don't see those two guys going anywhere else. I believe those two guys are the future at their position on this football team. Now, if you're telling me that Deron Payne's going to be the future at the other defensive tackle next to Jonathan Allen, then, I mean, it doesn't hurt my feelings to know that he's going to be clogging the middle up. What it does is it makes me wonder how in the world are we going to be able to pay all four of them and keep them all four happy. That's an awful lot of salary cap to just, you know, to put in for one or two positions on the defensive front line. I mean, and, and if they're not getting us tons of sacks, each one of them, and being at the top of the league in their positions, then it's an overpay. But I honestly believe that's probably what they're doing right now is they're probably saying that they're going to to go into contract talks with Payne. And if it works out and they're able to work a deal out, then so be it. In the long run, it could just be, you know, a bunch of lip service trying to keep his trade value up. Who knows at this point? 
maybe everybody is completely wrong about him being trade bait. Maybe that little skirmish he had with Jonathan Allen wasn't a big deal, like they said. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see how that one works itself out. Uh, and then the, the last week or so, I didn't I didn't touch on this, but Juan Castillo has been hired as the new tight end coach after Pete Horner retired. Now. I know that everybody knows how good of a tight end coach that Horner was. So, you know, I, I realize that some people are probably like, oh man, you know, this is going to hurt the team or whatever. But Castillo is actually a, 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 you know, a guy that we could do a lot worse than, um, you know, he's had that title before, but most notably he was with the Eagles from 1995 to 2012. And he had several different titles there. Uh, he started out as an offensive assistant. He changed over to being a tight end coach in 97 and then over to an O-line coach in 98, and then changed again to a defensive coordinator in 2011, which is kind of odd if you think about it. And then, of course, the next move he made was in 2013 when he went over to Baltimore and became their run game coordinator, and then their O-line coach in 2014 to 2016 before moving on to a similar position in Buffalo. And, um, and then, you know, Chicago, the last two seasons, he was their offensive line coach. But Castilla has experienced coaching Logan Thomas already from their time over in Buffalo. And um, you know, here's, here's a little quote from him this week. And he said, we have a good relationship. And I'm just excited when we get back on the field to keep growing and keep developing and just get him even better than he was last year. I believe there was a time when there was a crossover between these, you know, between Castilla and Rivera in Philly. I'm not sure which year it was, but... You know, he was there for quite a while, I believe almost 20 years. So one other thing, um, he actually went to college with Daryl Green at Texas a and I. I believe he left school a year earlier than Daryl did. I'm thinking he'll hit the ground running and we won't even really, you know, see the difference between him and Horner, hopefully. And of course, I hope that, uh, that Horner is happy in his retirement. I wish he could have stayed on a little bit longer. Maybe we could have made something out of it. I know that the, the tight ends on the roster love the guy. But at any rate, this week, another thing happened with, I believe everybody was calling it Crestgate or something to that nature, which I think is hilarious. But the DC media just, they look for things to try to, to complain about and get everybody all riled up. And they didn't have to look very far with this one because the fan base was riled up the moment they saw this and saw the Super Bowl dates on that crest not being correct. And this week they finally fixed those Super Bowl dates on that crest that they unveiled earlier this month. Now keep in mind this came after the team first said that they wanted to use the dates from the games and not the season year, even though every other team in the, the whole leagues, you know, uses the season year on all their merch they sell and everything they talk about. You know, like I, I heard from Cowboy fans, I immediately got messages from Cowboy fans like, why y'all trying to steal a 92 Super Bowl from us? And I'm thinking to myself, why would we try to steal 92 Super Bowl from y'all when our team in 91 was possibly the best it ever was? You know, but but whatever, you know, at first the team and Jason Wright said that they were going to update it whenever they go to update the crest again. Um, but <laughs> that led to just fans complaining nonstop about it. And it actually became a major punchline amongst those who, let's just say, don't accept the new name or don't support the team any longer. And, uh, you know, the, the team then asked the league to switch the dates over to, to Roman numerals, which led to the NFL refusing and saying, that those Roman numerals are actually copywritten marks. So, you know, it made the team look stupid again. And 
you know, I don't, I have zero clue why they just didn't change the dates to begin with. And, you know, in this conversation at the beginning of it, uh, I, the only thing I could think of is maybe they just didn't want to admit to messing something that easy, you know, up after two years of having, you know, plenty of time to be able to design it before they ever showed us what it looked like. And I'm just so surprised that somebody somewhere didn't see that and know how, you know, Washington fans are and, and say those are the wrong years. But at any, you know, any rate, the Crest now has the correct years from the 82, 87, and 91 Super Bowl years on the Crest. And I realized some people were like, oh man, this is such a trivial thing to argue over. Not really, because if you think about it, they said from the onset that they were going to try to hold on to the, to, to the, to the team's past, you know, while moving on into the future with this new rebrand or whatever. And basically they shit all over the history of pretty much everything by getting those dates wrong. And so I know somebody's out there like, oh, you're going to bet you about anything. No, I'm not. I, I'm not sitting here complaining about anything. I'm sitting here telling you what the reality of the situation is, is if you say that you're going to hold up the history and move forward, then hold up the history and move forward. Don't act like the history needs to be changed so you can move forward or don't act like you know the history needs to be pushed down before you can move forward you know I, I just don't think that's the right way to do it I also don't think that they really know the right way to do it and that's actually sad in my you know in my opinion I, I think they probably could have found several people that could have helped them transition into this new name and this new situation and maybe even thrown that name past a few people and heard people tell them nee, I don't think so but, you know, they just charged forward. They they keep talking about these team ambassadors and everything. I, if these team ambassadors told them that, that that crest was all right and that that name was great, then they probably should find some new team ambassadors. I'm just saying, man, like, I, I, don't, I don't see where they've helped them out any since this whole ambassador program started to begin with. But who am I, right? Just some fan off to the side that's been a fan for 40-some years. But it's, it's all good. At any rate, this team is getting eerily close to having to make a decision on Landon Collins. And I know that a lot of people are higher on Landon Collins right now than they were last year. But keep in mind, do we really want to pay a guy, you know, like $15 million to be a hybrid linebacker and cover tight ends? I mean, is that something we really want to do? We already have safeties that are better than Landon, okay? And if we're telling ourselves that we need more linebackers to cover tight ends or we need to, you know, to get a hybrid guy, we can get guys like that in the draft. Guys like that come out a lot. I'm not trying to say that Landon doesn't bring a special set of, you know, talents, of skills to the, to the position. What I'm trying to say is, is that we could do much better for much cheaper. Now, this albatross of a fucking contract that he's signed to has always had an out this year. And there's two ways to look at it, okay? If they release him before June 1st, he'll count for $9.6 million in dead cap space for the 2022 season, but it'll save the team $6.6 million in the process, okay? If they wait until after June 1st, they'll only take a dead cap hit in 2022 of $4.2 million, but then they would incur the rest of that dead cap hit in 2023, which would be $5.4 million in 2023. And overall, for the 2022 season, it would save the team $12 million. So, you know, obviously, if you do it pre-June 1st, you're doing it so the team can get that, that $6 million, almost $7 million spike 
and cap space to be able to go after free agents. If they wait till after June 1st, they get 12 million. Maybe they use that 12 million to restructure somebody down the road. Maybe, just maybe, they make a trade after they get that 12 million because it opens up, you know, some cap space in there. And if they were to land one of the bigger quarterback names, they're going to have to be ready to pay them money. You know, those guys are, you know, average quarterbacks are making $20 million now, you know a season the, the good quarterbacks are making 35 to, to I believe Aaron Rodgers is about to probably try to push for 50 a year which is completely nuts but it's just the way the market is working right now and you know looking back at Collins you know he spent a lot of time on the injured reserve last year and I know that's not his fault per se but you have to start looking at how old he is you know can you replace him in the draft there's been a couple guys in the last couple drafts that have come out that you know, could have done his job better for cheaper. Um, I know that Daniel Snyder fell in love with this guy. I guess he he thought in his mind that he was something like Sean Taylor. I don't know. I think that the two should never be compared because, you know, maybe, maybe minus that one season in New York, Landon Collins has never lived up to the billings of being, quote unquote, a Sean Taylor-like player. He's just not that guy. You know, up in the box, I love him. Like, he's a great player. But you have to ask yourself if he's worth this kind of money. And if this team can replace him with somebody cheaper, why not do it? You really have to ask yourself that question. And I feel like the front office is, is going to have to make a decision on this one real soon. You know, if you, if you cut him, then, you know, are you looking for an in-the-box guy? Like, you know, are you looking for that hybrid linebacker again? Maybe. There's also a possibility that Jamin Davis could possibly play into that role eventually. Or maybe they, the guy they draft, maybe this year, a middle linebacker, um, could, could play into that to that role. Who knows yet? We have to be willing you know, to, to think outside the box and move on if need be. Now, most all um, you know, longtime Washington Redskins fans or people that have been following the team for the last 10, 15 years at least um, know the name Colt Brennan. Everybody remembers Colt, you know, maybe the, the, the middle-aged to older crowd anyway, remembers Colt, um, you know, when he played Hawaii and he broke all those records. He ended up, you know, having a lot of injuries in college that really kind of killed his chances of being a professional football player. But he was a member of our football team. And uh, I saw an article this week that was talking about the, um, the injuries that he sustained, you know, in life and in football. And I really wanted to read over this article from Sports Illustrated and let you guys kind of get a feel for what they're talking about here. And, and it's basically talking about the investigation into his brain because he uh, donated his brain for further research. But anyway, here's the article. And like I said, it's from Sports Illustrated. It's titled, It's the Continuous Hits. Colt Brennan's family learned CTE played role in his death. The article starts off by saying Terry and Betsy Brennan gather around a laptop in the kitchen of their home in Irvine, California, alongside their daughter, Chanel Brennan Brewster, as they log in to a Zoom meeting. They're about to find out whether their son and Chanel's older brother, former Hawaii football star Colt Brennan, died with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. The, the degenerative brain disease brought on by blows to the head. Chanel, who is a few months pregnant with her second daughter, says she's naming her after Colt. Marley James. Bob Marley was Colt's favorite artist, and James, James was Colt's middle name. 
A framed jersey hangs on the wall beside them, commemorating Hawaii's retirement of Colts number 15. Colt had been one of the best quarterbacks college football had ever seen. During his junior year at Hawaii, he set the NCAA single-season record for passing touchdowns with 58 and was projected to be an early pick in the NFL draft. He chose instead to return for his senior year in 2007 when he led the Rainbow Warriors to their first undefeated season and finished second in Heisman voting as Hawaii's first finalist for the award. He finished his collegiate career with 31 NCAA passing records. Injuries and surgeries derailed his NFL career, however, and a car accident on a Kona Highway in 2010 left him with severe and permanent injuries that led to the end of his football career. He struggled with alcoholism and addiction for a decade after that, in and out of countless therapy and treatment programs before finding Treehouse Recovery in Costa Mesa, California at the start of 2021. He thrived as the Treehouse program integrated teachings on neuroscience and biology with writing alongside intense physical training and challenges. The Brennan family felt like they had the cult they knew and loved back. But in May 2021, Terry and Betsy returned home from a trip to Mexico and found Colt drunk and high in their home and having suffered a, a major relapse. He was surrounded by bottles of vodka, cans of beer, and canisters of nitrous oxide one of his primary drugs of choice. They drove him to Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach where he was told they were keeping Colt in the emergency room until he was able to enter detox. Instead, Hogue released Colt around 1 a.m. that night whereupon Colt made his way to a nearby hotel. He apparently met some men who delivered various drugs to him. At around 4 a.m., responding to a 911 call, paramedics found Colt unconscious and not breathing from an apparent drug overdose. Colt was taken back to the hospital where he was in a coma and sustained on a ventilator and IV. When it became clear the damage done to his body and brain was irreversible, Colt was allowed to die. He was only 37 years old. Autopsy results eventually reveal Colt had died from the combined toxic effects of ethanol, methamphetamines, amphetamines, and fentanyl. But the Brennans wanted to know more. They wanted to look deeper than the addiction to what could have been happening in Colt's brain to drive him into that addiction and what could be making it so hard for him to get and stay sober. The Brennans donated his brain to Boston University's CTE Center to determine whether he had been suffering from the disease, which can only be diagnosed post-mortem. So now, on the other end of Thursday's Zoom call, Lisa McHale, Director of Legacy Family Relations at the Concussion Legacy Foundation, and Dr. McKee, a professor of neurology and pathology at Boston and the CTE Center Director, are ready to share what they found. McKee said it was harder than usual for them to examine the brain due to the nature of Colt's death. Since the overdose rendered Colt unconscious and unable to breathe for long enough for his, that his brain looked as though it had suffered a gigantic stroke, he lost a lot of tissue that interfered somewhat with McKee's examination. She also identified significant traumatic brain injuries in multiple parts of his brain. The first she noted was a massive gap in the membrane that connects the two sides of the brain to each other. Colt suffered a significant cavium septum pellucidum that ran the length of the membrane meaning there was a gap or a cave all along it that should not have been there he also suffered from a loss of tissue in his right frontal lobe that essentially left a hole there due to a substantial loss of tissue caused by the 2010 car accident while all these factors made it more difficult for mckee to access the extent of cte in the brain mckee was able to confirm colt's brain showed cte in the frontal cortex the brainstem and other subcortical regions, it was enough to call CTE stage one, she, call, she says. 
but it might have been greater had we been able to really assess the other regions. The traumatic brain injury, TBI, caused by the car accident alone would have been enough to create issues for Colt, and the Brennans did see a marked change in his personality after the incident. He became more emotional and and began drinking and using drugs more. Addiction by nature hijacks brains and damages them in a way that convinces the brain it needs the addictive substance to survive. This alone is often an enormous challenge to overcome. Add in a TBI, particularly one to the frontal lobe, and that challenge becomes magnified. CTE on top of that creates a compounding effect. The prefrontal cortex governs executive function and decision making as well as the ability to process emotions in a healthy manner and shut down his more destructive impulses. His ability to avoid those things were really diminished, McKee says. He's got impulses that he can't control. He's got urges that are physical in nature. That's a physical aspect of this. It's it's not just will and fortitude and discipline. He's got injuries that he's trying to overcome. Justin McMillan, the founder and director for Treehouse Recovery, says that without the damage there, it just made it that much harder for him to become sober and sustain that sobriety, which is just heartbreaking. He was really working uphill, said Ryan Bain, a treehouse counselor and former Division I college player. He had a pretty limited toolkit giving everything he had been going through with the car accident, the damage to his brain, and addiction in, in and of itself, without all the other medical issues, not to mention his fall from grace. It's really difficult for people. The self-esteem collapse that comes from that. McMillan and Bain found it remarkable Colt was able to get himself healthy and sober considering all he was facing, especially in the light of the CTE diagnosis. In a journal, Colt wrote about how powerless he often felt to stop himself from acting on the impulses that drove him back to drinking and drugs time and again. Anyone struggling with that, they're going to have a problem with all those things, Bain said. Consequence evaluation, being able to work through intense or aggressive tendencies that are exasperated, planning, rational decision-making, all of that. It just becomes more difficult, more complex. Treating these issues is a tremendous challenge as well. We really need better ways to help these guys, McKee says. Better ways to identify they're going through the issues. We notice very well that there's almost nothing to really offer these guys. There's very few people that even recognize this as an issue. Even if it is recognized, it is very difficult to treat. McKee says one way to help people suffering from traumatic brain injuries and symptoms of CTE is to understand exactly that their symptoms are the result of injuries that have sustained and not reflections on who they are as a person. Just having that validation that it's not willful, that's not a character flaw, that's not a weakness of his, it's not on him. It's actually this brain injury that's very difficult for everyone to manage. That gives some comfort to people and it stops the self-blame. Although Colt changed significantly after the car accident, the science suggests the damage to his brain from CTE began years earlier. Terry recalled that Colt suffered a concussion while at Colorado was a walk-on before he transferred to Hawaii, and years before, when he was 12 years old, he suffered a conscience so severe he began throwing up and had to go to the emergency room. However, while such concussions are certainly a concern, Mikhail explains it's the repetitive hits football players take that are the true roots behind CTE. I did not realize that, Chanel said. I didn't know that. So it's just, so it's not just about the concussions. It's about it's the continuous hits, McKee said. Those hits can be sub-concussive as well as concussive. It's the cumulative nature of those hits to the head, which over time causes the brain to deteriorate. He played 17 and a half years. That's a very long time. And there are substantial hits that occur at the youth level of football. It all adds up. That's why the focus on concussion, while very helpful from the NFL, is not addressing the root problem. 
The root problem is the hits, even the ones that players play right through as though nothing happened. They do have a solution to really make a dent to mitigate CTE. You have to reduce exposure, meaning the less contact, the less likelihood of developing CTE, Mikhail said. As a foundation, we feel very strongly that contact should not be introduced in the sport of football before high school. That could go a long way in reducing the risk for the significant number of people and we'd see instances of CTE decrease significantly. After the call, the Brennans thanked Mikhail and McKee for their help. They say they feel more at peace now. They have a better understanding of just how much damage Colt was dealing with and how remaining sober was more difficult than expected. Colt's spirit lives on. The Brennans established the Colt Brennan Legacy Fund in Hawaii in order to provide goods and services to people there as well as contribute money and sources to mental health causes everywhere. A shrine to him remains on a shelf in the living room at the center of the household. Some of Colt's ashes have been laid to rest at the Pacific View Memorial Park alongside his beloved grandfather, while others were spread in the ocean at the family beach house in Oceanside. On March 20, in a memorial ceremony open to the public, the remainder of the ashes will be spread in the waves off the coast of Oahu. Betsy opens a scrapbook and begins leafing through it, one of the several they have containing newspaper clippings and pictures from throughout Colt's life and chronicling just about every game he played. The Brennans think back to when Colt first began playing football. They realized he must have been no more than eight years old, and Betsy says he probably got hit a lot. Now, I realize that was a long um, story there, but you can't help but feel bad for that family. And uh, you know, I was able to meet Colt one time, and he seemed like a guy that was full of life at that point in his life. Um, it's just a sad story. Okay, so moving on to something a little more up upbeat. Um, some possible locations in Virginia for the new stadium were... I'm not going to say leaked. They were unveiled this week. Um, and one article that was talking about it came from Nikki Javala of, I hope I said that right, of the Washington Post. Um, she writes, the football team is considering three options in Virginia, one in Loudoun County and two in Prince William. The most accessible site from D.C. is in Sterling near a quarry off the northeast corner of Dulles International Airport. The other two in Prince William County are along I-95 and Woodbridge and near the Potomac Shores Golf Club in Dumfries. I've always had like a conversation. Is it Dumfries or Dumfries? I, 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 honestly, I don't know because I'm not from that area. But I'm going to, for the sake of this conversation, call them Dumfries. But all three Virginia sites are at least 27 miles from the capital. But only the Sterling site is accessible to the metro, assuming the Dulles extension on the Silver Line opens. Some Virginia lawmakers have discussed potentially expanding metro to serve one or more of the proposed sites. But according to Ms. Javala, all three plans include a 700 square foot stadium and nearby hotel, uh, training facilities with three fields, an indoor field and offices, a resort, conference center and amphitheater, retail spots, uh, they, they, they figure there's gonna be all kinds of places to shop, offices, housing for people that wanna move you know, near there, a nightclub, which I think that's kind of random to throw in there, but anyway, a family venue like um, she says, think Lego Discovery and a cinema. Now, that all sounds fine and dandy. I mean, it sounds like it could be great. But what it basically did was spawn another argument amongst uh, Washington fans. And, and it's if you think about it, it's a really odd discussion because you end up with like the Maryland fans thinking that, you know, the team is going to lose their, you know, their fandom by moving 20 miles further down from where they are now 
or moving you know further along down the the the, um, the interstate or whatever and i think that the maryland people sometimes forget that everybody in virginia north carolina you know even dc and and you know further up north and further out west everybody for the last 30 years however many years everybody has been traveling into maryland and dealing with what we have to deal with when we get there especially all around that stadium i mean it's just it's hard to get in it's hard to get out it's kind of ridiculous to be quite honest with you and the maryland fans seem to think that coming 20 minutes into virginia would be the worst thing that's ever happened and i'm gonna be honest with you i can't see it being any worse than it already is as far as getting in and out of there i guess you know it could always be worse i know somebody's going to say it but i guess i just don't see where they're coming from because i've never had the stadium in my home state and been able to drive 10 minutes down the road and go to a game you know if they could travel 10 minutes down the road and go to the game then they shouldn't miss a game if the tickets are reasonably priced right and if they're not if they're overpriced i can understand people not wanting to go see a team that sucks with bruce allen as the gm for overpriced tickets i get that but um you know i think sometimes people don't stop and think about the fact that virginia fans have been coming out of the, their state for as long as they've been fans to travel to see this team and, and i saw maryland fans saying they didn't want to travel 20 miles down the road to go see the team i mean that sounds ridiculous okay but i've heard them say oh well the you know a lot of fans will just turn to being uh ravens fans well, you know, that might be inevitable anyway, no matter what happens, you know. Uh, and if a, if a person turns over to being a Raven fan at this point after being a Redskin fan for however long, I don't even have nothing to say. I like, like, whatever, dude. Just don't come back when the team starts winning. That's the only thing I have to say. You know, I, I can't blame anybody for stopping liking the team. I mean, they, they, they changed names and did all kinds of crazy shit in the process. They're always, you know got all this damn drama and shit so my point is don't come back when they start winning okay that's the only thing i have to say you know i, I respect everyone on both sides of any argument that you want to have when it comes to where the stadium should go but yeah just don't come back if you quit the team but at any rate sounds like they're going to have some things to put together i myself want the stadium to be in dc I would love for it to be right on the, the, the spot that RFK is at right now. But I have questions on whether or not DC can offer up that spot to that football team. I really do. I mean, they don't even control the land at this point. It's still controlled by the federal government. You know, I saw this week where, like, you know, senators are trying to make it um, illegal for them to be able to get the bonds that, that we've already heard may be the financial, one of the financial legs of keeping a team or putting a team, I should say, in Virginia. So if that bond system disappears and they're not able to put a billion dollars over there, you know, into Daniel Snyder's hands to be able to build a stadium, then who knows what could happen here? Like, I, I know that Maryland is trying to put together a package to keep them, you know, and, and, and it shouldn't slip everybody's mind. Snyder already owns, what, like 200 acres over there or 300 acres over there in, in, in Maryland where FedEx Field's at. And you know that could make a big difference there uh me personally i've already gone on record as saying that i don't care what it costs that um you know snyder should foot the entire bill no matter where it goes but i do have a tendency to want it back in dc i don't know if that's because of nostalgia or what it is but that's where i think they belong and i realize that everybody has you know an opinion on this one because we all had the places that we grew up and where we live at you know and everybody wants it in their area in their state and this that and the third 
All I'm saying is, is don't stand across the line and point at the team and say, I'm not traveling 20 minutes further to see them when everybody else has been traveling like hours to see them for years. I mean, you know, just saying. And lastly, this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about Charlie Taylor. You know, Washington lost another um, legend over the last week. You know, looking at Taylor from a distance, you look at it, the fact that he retired with the most catches in the history of the NFL. No matter how you look at, at how his career ended or, or what he did in his career, how far he got, um, to this day right now, he registers second in franchise history in receptions, receiving yards, and scrimmage yards. Uh, he is the franchise leader in touchdowns. He was an eight-time Pro Bowler, and he's one of five players in NFL history with 5,000-plus receiving yards and 1,000-plus rushing yards and 80 plus touchdowns and of course it goes without saying that he's a hall of famer but one thing that stands above all the accolades that he was given above all the stats and the highlights was the warmth the man brought to the room you know i i met charlie twice uh first time at a card show at tyson's corner and the second time at a restaurant i believe in richmond somewhere but on both occasions he was just as nice as he could possibly be you know, make no mistake about it, folks. We lost a great one with him. And I, I feel like maybe the younger generation doesn't really understand the greatness that came with him. But for us older people, it comes a time, you know, when it feels like that Redskin legacy is just dying right in front of our eyes. Um, you know, the only thing I can say is rest in peace, Charlie Taylor. You will be missed. But at any rate, that's all I got for this episode. Should have more coming next week when it comes about the combine, maybe a couple other things, but make sure to subscribe to the podcast for more episodes in the future. Y'all take it easy. Peace.